Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew 16. Have you ever noticed that we kind of have an odd way of greeting people in our culture? We greet them with questions. Questions that we really don't want the answer to. One, one of the, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a greeting, but it's an odd way of doing it. What's the most common one? How you doing? How you doing? Heaven forbid you would say anything other than, I'm good. It gets kind of awkward, actually, if they're simply issuing a greeting and then you try and answer the question. Another one that I get a fair amount, maybe you do too, is, what do you know? What do you know? How are you supposed to answer that one? Not much, right? Some, something, along, something along those lines. But lately, when I get this question, um, I've been, I don't know, messing with the rules of engagement. I've been answering like this. When they say, what do you know? I say, less than I used to. Less than I used to. I just turned 45 uh, this month, and the older I get, the more I am aware of how little I know. When I was younger, I thought I knew a lot, especially right out of, after I got out of seminary. I thought I knew a lot. But the older I get, the more I realize how much more there is to know. Not just intellectual stuff, facts, but so much more to know about life. Specifically, the Christian life. What it means to follow Jesus. Yes, as a pastor, I feel like I'm in a stage of my life right now where I am more aware than ever of how much more I need to know. The disciples in Matthew 16 today find themselves in a similar boat. The passage we left off with last week um, was really this watershed moment in the book of Matthew. Um, There is this big reveal, a revelation that is from God. They come to see Jesus. They come to know something about Jesus that is critical and true. Jesus asks the disciples a question, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the whole group and he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He gets it. He knows the truth about Jesus. He knows a lot, right? Well, the disciples think they know a lot. But we just get a few verses down from this landmark profession of faith and we realize they have oh so much more to learn about who Jesus is what he came to do and what it means to follow him and thankfully Jesus is gracious to his disciples and bringing them along not slapping them down when they say the right answer and saying yeah but you don't know all you need to know No, He leads them along to this deeper 
and greater understanding that they need to come to. He does that in a couple of ways. One, through teaching them, but he does something else in this passage. Maybe I can put it this way. He does show and tell. He tells them what they need to know about him and following him, but he also shows them what it is that they need to see. What they come to realize is something that we need to come to realize increasingly as well. And that is that the path that Jesus walked and the path that we are called to walk as His disciples is more difficult than you could ever imagine. But where that path leads to is also more glorious than you can ever imagine. And it's getting the tension between these two truths right that becomes really the goal of the whole Christian life, making progress in that way. So with that in mind, that set up, would you please now stand for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to be reading from verse 21 in chapter 16 through verse 13 of chapter 17. The telling happens first. The showing happens second. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then his disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we've got disciples that know something right about who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. But disciples, as you probably saw in the reading of this passage, that still have a lot of room to grow in their knowledge of who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. So in verse 21, we see this shift in the book. The book of Matthew um, really finds a major hinge point in verse 21. Up to this point, the main emphasis has been on demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we begin to see what it means for him to be the Messiah in verses 21 and following. And this is really what we learn in this passage. In short, the cross comes before the crown. It's my sermon title. Really the message, I think, of this entire passage. But to put a finer point on it, I would put it this way, as it is up on the screen. The suffering of the cross is great, but the glory of the crown is greater still. The suffering of the cross is great, but the glory of the crown is greater still. We see all of this in both parts of the passage. Um, But the first part of the passage really emphasizes the suffering, and the second part emphasizes the glory. We see in verses 21 to 28 of chapter 16, a sermon, if you will, a sermon on suffering. And then in chapter 17, 1 to 13, in this transfiguration, a glimpse of the glory. So, a sermon on the suffering to come, a glimpse of the glory to come. That's how we'll divide the rest of our time. Let's begin with this sermon. It's divided into two parts, as a lot of sermons are. Jesus explains the main theological truth about Him, and then He applies it to His disciples. So first, what he must do as the Messiah. He must be killed and then be raised. That's the first part of his sermon. Teaches that he must be killed and then raised. Look at verse 21. It's very clear. He began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. How does Peter respond to this teaching? He's kind of, he's kind of the spokesperson for the group. Um, he gets that he's the Christ, and so now we're not surprised that he's the first one to respond to this as well. What does he think about it? He objects. 
It's just amazing to me that he would give an objection. But he objects. Why? He objects because this is not what he expects of what would be true of the Messiah. Certainly, Peter, along with many in his day, were expecting the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah came, they expected him to immediately deal with their enemies. The people who were opposing the people of God. Namely, if Jesus is the Messiah, Peter and the disciples and all sorts of others along with him are saying, can you please get Rome out of our business? Off our back. Deal with our enemies. That's what the Messiah will do. Didn't we just sing that in Psalm 96? That that's what God will do? God will do that. Jesus will do that. That is not being denied here. But what is being emphasized here is that the main thing that we need saved from, the first thing that we need saved from is not the enemies that surround us. What is the main and the first thing that we need saved from? Matthew told us in the first chapter of his Gospel, when the Christ child was to be born, an angel appeared to Joseph and said to him, Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call His name Jesus. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. That's it. That's the main thing that we need saved from or the first thing that we need saved from. And how does God, how does the Messiah save us from our sins? Through Jesus going to Jerusalem, suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, being killed, and then being raised. The cross deals with our sin. The resurrection deals with the wages of our sin, which is death. It declares to death, you are defeated. This is the main thing, the first thing that Jesus needed to do to save us from our sin. It was necessary. What does Peter say to this necessity? Never. This will never be true of you. So do you see what's happening? The rock has become the stumbling block. The one who in one moment, this is us friends, gets it That Jesus is the Messiah from God in the next moment wants to get in the way of the way that Messiah will save His people from their sins. And so Jesus says, get out the way. Behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Do you recognize that language? Satan, you see, wants nothing more than to get in the way of the cross. Whether at Jesus' first coming that we're reading about here or right now, this morning, for those of you who are hearing the Gospel, to get in the way of the cross. For you to think, I don't need the cross. And so Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and tried to divert His path from the cross and to seize immediate glory Now, and what does Jesus say to Satan in that moment? Be gone, Satan. Literally. 
get behind me, Satan. And now he's saying the same thing to Peter. And he would say the same thing to anybody who gets in the way of God's plan, of God's mind to save people from their sin. He won't be diverted from going to Jerusalem. The cross comes before the crown. Suffering comes before glory. Being killed before being raised. That's the first part of the sermon. But now, Jesus turns to the second part of the sermon, to applying the sermon, not just to what must be true of Him, but to what must also be true of any who would come after Him. And this is what we learn. Disciples must lose earthly life to gain eternal life. Verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. To deny oneself is quite simply to abandon the pursuit of self-advancement. The thing that our culture wants to encourage us towards so much. To take up a cross is to die to yourself on the one hand. So it is kind of synonymous with denying yourself. But it's more than that. It's an actual willingness to die for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. We are so used to, in our culture, talking about taking up our cross in all kinds of ways that we forget that the guys that he was speaking to originally, most of them were executed for their faith. And we can't lose sight of that. There are people that are being executed for their faith today. And this teaching still applies to that. The basic lesson is really quite simple. If you really believe in Jesus, you will follow Him. And following Him is not just obeying His teaching, it's actually living a life like He lived. He lived a life of suffering before glory. He took the cross before the crown. We must too. That doesn't mean that we will die for anybody's sins. Only Jesus can do that. But we must live a life of dying if we are to follow Him. But why would we sign up for that? I mean, why would... Have, some of you have signed up for that. Did you know that? Your baptism said it. I have died with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Why would we sign up for a life of denial, a life of dying? Because we believe the other side of the equation too. We not only believe in the cross, we also believe in the crown. If you are in Christ, you will go the way He went. Yes, through suffering, but also to glory. So the basic message is it's worth it. All that Jesus does in verses 24, 25 to 27 are to illustrate this point. It's a lesson in divine economics. We need to do the math and see that it all adds up. It's worth it. If you lose your temporary life, it's okay. You'll gain eternal life. Verse 26 Conversely, 
if you gain what this world has to offer, I mean, he ratchets it up a little bit. He says, actually, if you got all that you ever could, you gained the whole world, you'd be bankrupt. You'd forfeit your life, forfeit your soul. He goes on in verse 27 to continue this divine economics talk. He says, payday's coming. Jesus is going to return and repay everyone. Those who clung to their life here, who were unwilling to deny themselves, they will be repaid in judgment. But those who live for Jesus now will live with Jesus when He returns. They will reap eternal rewards. That's the divine economics. Why take up a cross? Because the life you lose is nothing compared to the life that you gain. There are so many in this life trying to attain life. Abundant living according to the world's standards. Don't act like you're not tempted by that. It's a real and present temptation to avoid the cross and to seek the crown now. Whether that be the crown of possessions, popularity, prestige, pleasure, some sense of protection, trying to build our life here. But friends, that math doesn't work either. If what the Bible says is true. But it is worth it to abandon clinging to those things if what the Bible says is true. We can lose or not go after so hard worldly wealth because we believe that we have heavenly riches. We don't have to cling to man's acceptance. Why? Because we have God's acceptance if we are in Christ. We do not have to go after temporal pleasure and comfort in food, in sex, in consumerism. If we believe that we have eternal comfort, we don't try to have we don't have to try to build a wall of protection around us. And we can lose a sense of safety and security because we have eternal protection from God's judgment. Does that matter to you? Let me put it this way. Have you put your money where your mouth is? Is there evidence in your life that you believe this stuff? That it's real? Or maybe another way to put it. Are you eating what you're cooking? Always be wary of a cook who won't eat what they're serving others. 
what are we serving people as believers? I mean, we talk the talk. (laughs) We tell people that Jesus' death and His resurrection have secured eternal forgiveness and eternal life. That's the message that we're putting forth to the world. But as people look at our lives, do they see that it's real? Or are they like, I can't believe you. I can't, I can't believe that you actually believe that. Because what you're really going for is life in this world, not life in the world to come. Are you eating what you're cooking? Have you put your money literally and figuratively where your mouth is. Some of these pastors in Afghanistan I read about have. It's really remarkable. When push comes to shove, where do you stand? These guys saw the writing on the wall last month when they made a decision to register their faith publicly with the Afghan government. Why'd they do that? They believed that the math works. That what they gain is greater than what they lose. The price they pay now is nothing compared to the reward that they will gain going forward. The sake of a witness for their children and their grandchildren of standing up for Jesus was of more value than what they're dealing with now. What has the Taliban said to them? We know who you are. We know where you live. And we're coming for you. Thankfully, many have to date escaped. That's what we want. But not all have been so lucky. Some have been taken. Some of their children have been taken. Are they crazy? Are they out of their skull? Or does what they believe, is it true? that what they have lost is nothing compared to what they have gained. You see, their children and their grandchildren, they'll know. What about ours? Will they know? They've heard what we say we believe. What do they see? That's the question I'm asking myself. And so therefore, that's the question I'm asking you. We have to believe that the cross comes before the crown, but we also have to believe that the glory of that crown is greater than the suffering of that cross. And so what will it take for us to get that? I think it's going to require a greater vision of the glory so that we can be willing to endure the suffering. And thankfully, we get a glimpse of that glory in the transfiguration. And so, 
let's turn our attention to chapter 17 briefly. Nevaeh yesterday, just to kind of, I'm not going to go all through the transfiguration. I want you to see how it fits with what I've just said. That's my main goal this morning. Let me try and illustrate that with a Nevaeh story. Yesterday, I'm walking out the back door and Nevaeh greets me with a stick in her hand. And she says, Daddy, I need a bigger shovel. I don't know what she's talking about, so I push in a little bit and ask her what she's trying to accomplish and find out that she is searching for magic pixie dust. But she doesn't linger on the explanation of what she's looking for. She reiterates her request in her way. Dad, I need a bigger shovel. And so she takes me into the garage and points up on the wall to the one that she wants. I figured that that one might cut off her toe, so I gave her a little plastic garden spade. I hope she found what she was looking for. The disciples in this passage need to find something that is of much more valuable than magic pixie dust. They need to discover the truths of the kingdom of God. They need to come to see the implications of the gospel for their life. But they need a bigger shovel. And so Jesus, thankfully, leaves the pulpit leaves the classroom and takes his students on a field trip. He has taught them with words. He is now going to teach them with a vision. A vision on the mountain. And this vision on the mountain, it's complicated. I'm a little bit of a loss as to how to make it clear. Jesus made it so clear to them. I wish I could make it as clear to you as a pastor. But it teaches us a lesson that we need to learn if we're going to get that the cross comes before the crown. If we're going to get that the suffering is nothing compared to the glory. And it is this. That the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is an already but not yet reality. An already but a not yet reality. Jesus gives them a vision of the already so that they can live in the not yet. That's what's going on here. You see, the disciples and really everybody that was waiting for the Messiah expected that when the Messiah came that the kingdom would come immediately as well. That the glory of the kingdom would be ushered in immediately and all things would be set to its rights. But we're needing to learn that the cross comes before the crown. The kingdom is already, but it's not yet. In other words, it comes in stages. It comes in stages. Jesus has referred to the glory of the coming kingdom in the prediction of the resurrection itself. He's done that. But He also did that, if I can back up briefly to something that I left out earlier, He does that in this really weird statement that he makes in verse 28, which I think is the lead-in to what we see on the mountain in verse 17. Jesus makes this comment. 
He says, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What does this mean? As you can imagine, this is a very debated passage, but I think the first thing we need to establish is what is being referred to here when he talks of the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I think this is clearly a reference to one of Daniel's visions, the central vision in Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to turn over there and read this for you and see if you think this might be what Jesus is referring to. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There's that son of man language that Jesus is using throughout the Gospels. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's remember what Daniel's doing here. He's encouraging a group of people who are living in exile under the thumb of their enemies. He is letting them see that one day they will get deliverance from their enemies on the day that the kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, is given to the Son of Man. Given to the Messiah. When will it be given to Him? Jesus says, some of you will see it coming before you even taste death. Really? Is it not referring to the second coming of Jesus? Well, remember our lesson. This is where I'm going with all of this. The kingdom is an already, but a not yet kingdom. So there's a sense in which this kingdom is given to the Son of Man when Jesus is raised from the dead. What does Jesus say to His disciples after He is raised? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Daniel 7 language. But there's another sense in which the kingdom is not given to the Son of Man, to Jesus, until He ascends to the Father. How does He ascend? In the clouds of the heaven, like Daniel 7. And He is presented before the Ancient of Days. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The disciples saw all of this happen. This already manifestation of the kingdom in their lifetime. But there is another sense in which the kingdom will not be fully realized until Jesus returns in the clouds from heaven and puts all of His enemies under His feet. Already, but not yet. It's coming in the resurrection, in the ascension, in the return of Christ. But Jesus does something remarkable here for His disciples. Three of them, He gives them a glimpse of this glory now as they wait for the not yet. He takes them up on a high mountain six days after this sermon to illustrate what He's been teaching them. He's transfigured before them. 
His face becomes like the sun. His clothes are as white as light. It's interesting. That language actually is kind of how the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 is described. And Jesus looks like that. And if that wasn't enough, we see these two figures, Moses and Elijah, show up on the scene next to him. Why are they important? Well, because the Scriptures taught that before the final day came, that one like Moses would have to come and that Elijah would have to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now they're there. So if they're wondering about all this talk about suffering, at least they know Jesus is the one from God that the Scriptures predicted. And if that wasn't enough, now they get a real object lesson. A cloud descends. I mean, this is like Sinai stuff. And a voice from the cloud speaks. Again, Sinai stuff. And says what? This is my son. My beloved son. Don't doubt that. In all of this talk about suffering, he's the one. Listen to him. Listen to what He's teaching you about the way of the kingdom. It's not the way that you expect. You should see in this vision and hear in this voice that He is my Son, the Savior. Listen to Him. The way of the kingdom is not the way that you expect. He goes on as they're coming down to the mountain. The disciples ask him the question about Elijah because Elijah shows up. Doesn't Elijah have to come first? I mean, it's so much like us Bible students. We miss what God's doing right in front of us. Doesn't Elijah have to come first? Yes. But then Jesus goes back to this upside down kingdom teaching. He's like, what did they do with Elijah? John the Baptist is Elijah. What did they do with him? They took his head off. So what will happen to the one that you just saw in glorious splendor on the mountain? He's going to have to suffer. All of this object lesson is driving home at the point we've been talking about all morning. This is the way. This is the way of the kingdom of God. The cross before the crown. Suffering before glory. The kingdom is already, but it is not yet. We are still waiting for it. We need a clear vision of the glory that is to come if we are going to endure the suffering. We need to see the splendor of the crown to endure the cross. So let me end where I began. It's time to assess where you're at this morning. So let me ask you, what do you know? What do you know? Do you know that Jesus claims to be the Messiah? That's a start. Do you actually know that He is the Messiah? That's good. It's necessary but it's not sufficient. Do you also know that He died on the cross to pay for your sins and that He has been raised from the dead, defeating death, putting death on notice, 
Do you know that? You need to know that. But do you also know that if you really believe in Him, if you would come after Him, that you too must take up your cross and follow Him? And most importantly, do you know that it's worth it? Do you know that it's worth it? That the cost of the cross is nothing compared to the gain of the crown. Do you feel the weight of glory this morning? It is my prayer that you do because that's what you need. That's what you need to endure in the Christian life. That's what you need to bear witness in this world. In word and in deed. You need to be so gripped by the glory that is to come that you're willing to suffer when people oppose you for bearing witness. You need to be so gripped by the glory that is to come that you will actually live a life of self-denial because if you don't, nobody's going to believe what you say anyway. Lord, help us to move beyond what we know to the deeper truths that we need to know as disciples of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for the ways that we have access to Your Word, access to good teaching, to good resources. We don't take that for granted. And yet, we know that there is so much more that we need to know. Would You help us? Would You help us to see that the way of the cross is worth it. We ask in Jesus' name.